Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is the 28th day of February. That's it. Today's it. We're going to wrap up February today. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. One of my favorite um, passages of Scripture comes from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. And maybe you need to hear this encouraging word from God this morning. I know um, I need this reminder each and every day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We uh, bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the days in which we live. And so on this 28th day of February 2022, one of the things that, um, you know, I hadn't expected to be talking about a week ago that we are certainly talking about today is that it's day five of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so I'm going to touch on some of the things that you're going to need to know today about what is happening um, halfway around the world, but very, very present in terms of the hearts and minds of um, people everywhere. And so I want us to be aware of what's happening. I would regard The demonstration of the human will to live in freedom and democracy demonstrated by the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military and their leadership as at least heroic, if not almost supernatural. Um, They have to this point been able to thwart the efforts of Vladimir Putin to overthrow their nation. The people of Ukraine are resisting the invasion of Russia in what is now day five of, um, of a war that doesn't yet have a name but I believe will have uh, profound impacts, not only on the way in which we remember Russia um, but and Vladimir Putin, but the way in which we begin to become, with people around the world, a different kind of um, global community. Things are changing, shifting very, very quickly. We no longer live in the day of one you know, superpower or even just two. We are really becoming a community of nations, and some of that is emerging in the midst of all of this. So to bring you up to date, um, European nations, Canada and the United States have closed airspace to Russian planes, um, turning turning commercial jets around uh, midair, sending them back to Russia. Um, Putin moved Russia's nuclear uh, arsenal into high alert. That is probably the most disturbing thing that happened this weekend in terms of geopolitical uh, realities. It also raised, obviously, the nuclear posture of every other nation in the world. Russia has arrested thousands of its own citizens. As people protest the war, they are joined by millions around the world in cities large and small. Um, hashtag stand with Ukraine. More than half a million Ukrainian women, children and elderly individuals have already crossed borders 
international borders into Poland, Moldova, Romania, um, other nations that border Ukraine. Um, the uh, the German rail company has suspended um, all fees and and travel requirements. Uh, so people, once they cross the border, particularly into Poland, are then offered free passage on rail rail cars on trains. Uh, delivering them into Germany. An international coalition of nations has now shut down uh, Russian banks from participating in the the global economic transaction uh, service called SWIFT. Russian Central Bank is now scrambling to assure its citizens that their economy will not collapse as Russia is almost now thoroughly isolated from the global economy. Germany has, for the first time since World War II, increased its national defense spending beyond uh, the 2% GDP, which has been a set point for them um, since World War II. They've also, for the first time, uh, begun exporting military hardware, particularly to Ukraine, for its defense against uh, Russian tanks and armored personnel carriers. Um, Let me see where I am on my list. Sorry. Uh, Turkey, the nation of Turkey, has changed its posture. This is a really critical move as well. Turkey... um, has begun to use the word war to describe Russian actions. That change in language has now allow, allowed Turkey to activate its navy, and today they begin blocking Russian movements in the Black Sea. That is um, that's a really critical component of this conversation, but also may lead Russia to view that as um, a NATO uh, country, Turkey, engaging in active military action in this case, which, you know, constitutes war. So whether or not that triggers Article 5 um, of uh, our NATO alliance is a, is going to be a critical conversation unfolding today as well. Regular citizens, including Miss Ukraine and the wife of the vice president, have taken up arms to defend their families, their homes and their democracy. Um, and as they have done that, Ukraine has invited others to join the fight, to come to Ukraine and join the fight. And there are... Um, People responding to that, including today, American and other NATO military veterans. Um, that will change the calculus uh, of things on the ground as well. On the other side of, of the equation, it is possible that Belarus may formally join Russia today in its invasion efforts, um, even as uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has called for a ceasefire and high-level talks are beginning even now at the Ukrainian-Belarus border. The Vatican has offered to host dialogue. Um, I'll describe the situation as very, very dynamic. Our prayers are certainly needed. We're going to talk um, this morning with several of our guests uh, about things happening and the way that uh, just individual people are responding and how we as Christians can respond as well. First up this morning, we're going to talk with Pastor Dean and Sarah um, because he is, a, you know, a pastor of a regular church, and he deals with regular Christians like you and me every day, um, and because he also has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the culture, I like to talk with Dean about, like, when we look at ourselves in the mirror as Christians, like, what are some of the questions that we should be asking, and what might surprise us about the answer to the question, like, how do I know that I'm a Christian? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Got me singing like, hey, man. Hey, man. Hey, man. Oh, 
Pastor Dean and Sarah joining us this morning from City Church, Tallahassee. Dean, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. It's great to be with you. Okay. It, well, I'm so glad to have you. So, um, Sean Penn uh, issued a statement. He is over in Ukraine filming a documentary, um, and he issued a statement over the weekend. Um, the soul of America will be lost if we allow Ukraine to fight alone. I want to talk about the soul of a person. I'm not sure I know how to talk about the soul of a nation, but I want to talk about this question of being lost um, and this question of being saved. And it got me thinking about your book, The Unsaved Christian, which among all the things that you've written, um, I mean, I know it reaches back a couple of years, but this book, The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel, um, I don't know, it still seems so not just relevant, but piercingly relevant, asking the question, like, as a Christian, when I look at myself in the mirror, how, do I know that I'm saved? And what does that mean? So can we just talk about, just talk around this subject matter with you today? Oh, definitely. And I wrote the book because the majority of Americans are not atheists or agnostics. And when you look at data, it, you know, it looks like the majority of Americans are Christians well, look around the country. That can't be true either. <laughs> so what happens is a lot of people believe themselves to be Christians simply because they aren't atheists or agnostics or they aren't Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu, as in another one of the world's large religions. So because of that, they think they're Christians. And their answer for why they think they're Christians doesn't have much to do with Jesus, if anything at all. I mean, they might believe he exists and might believe in Christmas and that type of thing, uh, but actually Jesus being their, the one who gives salvation and their need for salvation and forgiveness of sins really isn't even in their repertoire when it comes to what they think it actually means to be a Christian or why they would consider themselves one to be. I mean, think about that for a minute. People can claim to be Christians and it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I'm not the judge mm -hmm. of who's a Christian, nor do I want to be. But the scriptures would in no way, shape, or form ever consider that to be a saving faith, a claimed Christianity apart from Christ. And that's what we see happening all over the place. So that, that's kind of what I mean by an unsaved Christian, someone who would claim to be a Christian, but their reason for believing so has nothing to do with what the Bible would say is actually saving faith. So everybody, you know, well, I say that, that may not be true. I, what I was going to say was, you know, well, everybody who professes to be a Christian wants to wants to then know that they have saving faith. But what I hear you saying is there's a lot of people who identify as Christian as a default position, as uh, as the cultural default in America. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with Christ, the second co-eternal member of the Trinity, having taken on human flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, living a life that's not only, you know, this perfect exemplar, but actually a life then given in perfect holy sacrifice for the atonement of sin, including mine. Um, and that at the foot of his cross, I bow my knee, I confess my need, I confess my sin, and I confess him as Christ and God imputes his righteousness unto me as, uh, as a sinner, as a fallen human being, in order that my eternal relationship with the Father might be reconciled through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And I put all of my faith in the death, resurrection, uh, and ascension, and future coming glory of the one who alone is the Christ. 
That's the difference. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those things where I like to say that if the cross and resurrection never happened, it wouldn't change their faith very much, (laughs) claiming Mm. to be Christians. Because I think the most, there's no data for this because you can't measure it, but I think the most common belief in America is just that we're all good people. Like everybody's just, we're just good people. And uh, good people go to heaven is kind of the idea uh, that you see all across the country. Every funeral I've ever been to, we're told that person's in a better place, right? And the reason they say that is because they're great people, right? He's a great guy, he's a great girl, you know, great lady, that kind of thing. Uh, so, but here's what I say about that. I say, well, they're right. They are really good people by the standards of this world. As long as you're keeping up with suburban wherever you live what morality looks like you can because you can feel good about yourself and think that you're a good person but the issue is god doesn't judge us by the standards of this world his the standard that he uses is himself he is holy and any sin separates us from him Uh, so that's why we believe in jesus and need jesus because he took on the death that we deserve for our sin against god but when you believe that you're fine and a really good person, then you're not going to really think you need a savior. You're just going to think you need more of a buddy or a good luck charm or a moral compass, something along those lines, not an actual savior to take away your sins that you don't really think you commit. Mm. All right. We're maybe talking about past. Maybe you just make mistakes. You make mistakes. You know, yeah, sometimes. and they're, and so they're little. They're, I yeah. mean, you know, even if they're lies, yeah. they're white lies. They're not big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. We're talking with Pastor Dean and Sarah. Um, we're talking around a range of topics this morning. I'm I'm revisiting his uh, his book from a couple of years ago, The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. Um, one of my favorite books of all time. Um, and I, I continue to return to the conversations that Dean lifts up. And so I wanted to um, I wanted to revisit the conversation today because I think that as we confront the challenges that we face today, it's important to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean for me to carry that identity into the world that God so loves? We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Listener Jack uh, is texting in the answer to the question of how we can know how we can know we are saved and not unsaved Christians. Um, one of the texts that Jack has lifted up is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever, uh, whoever has the Son, I want to read it accurately here, and I just scrolled off the page. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, Again, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. Jack, thank you for texting that in. We're talking with Pastor Dean and Sarah this morning about the reality that there are a lot of people, um, including people you and I know, uh, maybe including you, who, you know, you identify as a Christian, but you don't necessarily identify with Christ. We're talking about the reality of cultural Christianity and um, and how we can confront those realities in our own life and the lives of others. So, Dean, um, the past couple of years, I'm wondering how this conversation has evolved or changed. Um, and when I thought about this, I think, you know, God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, but everything else is different. 
you and me and the world in which we live and uh, the people with whom we're in relationship, the realities, you know, of, of each and every day. So could just talk with me about what you've maybe learned, reflect on the last couple of years in relationship to this conversation. Well, I think one thing that I've noticed really is the reality of cultural Christianity and how it can't last. Uh, because mm. if anything comes your way that's uncomfortable, if you really aren't, your faith isn't actually anchored to an object. That's the whole point. I appreciate the listener uh, sending that verse in, because the whole idea is our faith is not about a feeling. It's about an object, and that is Christ, right? It actually has to be anchored to Jesus. And people who just kind of had this generic, vague view of God, uh, their faith kind of altogether just kind of went dormant uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, they would, you know, they would maybe not admit that, but they might, there are certain people and pastors across the country are experiencing this and we will never see again. Uh, folks who are just kind of very cultural Christian would claim a church they went to maybe three or four times a year. And we're never going to see those people again uh, because they just kind of disappeared altogether. Now they have an excuse uh, to be gone. They can claim anything from busyness to COVID to whatever it might be. Uh, so I, I think we're, this, this has kind of helped us sort of see who's in and who's not uh, when it comes to following Jesus. And I think sometimes we need those uh, those reality checks uh, because sometimes church attendance and the desire to see big churches, uh, that allows cultural Christianity to thrive uh, because you can just sort of blend in and there's enough critical mass in bigger cities where cultural Christianity alone and somebody going to church, you know, four times a year can allow a sanctuary to be filled. And I think this last couple of years has allowed us to actually see what our real measuring sticks should be and what faithfulness actually looks like. You've reminded me there of a conversation I had very, very early on in COVID um, with David Kenneman from Barna. And we were talking about, um, you know, his expectation in terms of maybe how many churches would close in the midst of COVID. He made this observation. He said, just as there will be people who have comorbidities that lead to them succumbing to COVID, there are churches that have comorbidities. They have pre-existing conditions that are going to lead them to close because of COVID. And the primary, you know, comorbidity is that the local church, or the expression of it, um, cannot be sustained if there aren't real Christians, like real Christians. And so um, I think that, Dean, you're making a, a really important observation for those of us maybe who live in places or communities where churches are struggling to remain open. And as we look around, what we have to recognize is the the call to evangelism has not changed. I mean, if we're not actively reaching new people for Christ every day, then the church is not going to experience the kind of growth it experienced, let's say, in the book of Acts. Um, and, you know, God's not going to add to our number every day those who are being saved. God's going to continue to grow the church. It may not just not be the ones that we find ourselves in. Oh, definitely. And I really think the deciding factor is going to come down to real actual conviction. Like, what do you really believe to be true about the scriptures, about the name of Jesus? So that's one thing that's going to stand uh, because we're, we're starting to see really uh, in, in a generation, like, like, like the first time they've really had to have actual pushback about their faith, whether it's over gender and sexuality or over the exclusive claims of Christ or just over people that think they're fine and that the whole idea of Jesus is nice for you, but it's unnecessary. Uh, these things are coming. And I think what's going to separate faithful churches from churches that are really like like Kinnaman talked about are going to be churches that are that are unashamed to say this is what we actually believe and we think local church membership and being a part of this actually really matters 
and we're going to do something with it. We're not going to be isolated. We're not going to just kind of have our holy huddle, but we're going to see ourselves as missionaries in our communities with the greatest story ever told, you know, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think what's happened for too long is many of our evangelism strategies are designed for strangers who are skeptics. People we do not know that you meet on an airplane or wherever it could be that are very skeptical about faith. And I think that's great. We need as many evangelism strategies as possible. More evangelism, not less. But for most people in most places, their mission field context is people they already know who Mm -hmm. maybe think they're Christians and they're not. And I know I'm speaking from the South when I say that, but still in many of our more, you know, like very metro non-southern cities the majority of the population they're definitely not christians but they wouldn't claim to be atheists or agnostics either they would just kind of claim to maybe be they're just not sure or they're just searching or and and it sounds like agnosticism but it's not fully intellectually Uh, other people that think they're fine they probably think they're spiritual uh they're not of another world religion so they check the box yes the nuns are growing but it's still not the majority in america the majority of the people statistically in america would still check christian but jesus said the road is wide that leads to death and it's narrow that leads to life and one of the main roads on or one of the main things on that wide road are people who think they're christians and they're not yeah it's that lord lord crowd and then jesus yeah. is like you know you called me lord lord but i don't i don't know you it is about exactly it's not, you know, it's not about whether or not, um, you know, when when you were an infant or otherwise, somebody put water on your head or um, that because your family is generationally Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, whatever, that, you know, you're going to get in because generationally you come from a people who now uh, a shadow upon a shadow upon a shadow were Christians. Like it's it is about whether or not you as a real person have really, in real time, put your real life um, in the hands of the real Christ. Like, it, it, this is about reality. Um, and it then affects, influences, colors, changes, transforms every thought, ultimately every word, and eventually every deed in your life. But it's not just about words and deeds. It does start with a real relationship um, of a real sinner putting, putting themselves fully um, in the real hands of the real living God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. Um, Dean, as always, thank you so much. Um, maybe oh, yeah. the next time, maybe the next time we talk, you could give us a little, some thoughts on like your conversations that you're having with people about hope um, in the face of reality today. Cause I think that if we as Christians, if our evangelism strategies could be like, how do I, how do I reveal and demonstrate hope in the face of the challenges that my neighbors, friends, family, you know, these people who are closest to me who think they are Christians but are not, like, how do I, like, demonstrate and speak hope? I think that would be helpful. That'd be great. All right. Hey, brother, thanks so much. Blessings on you. You You guys can find... Thank you. You can find Dean and Sarah at the City Church in Tallahassee. You can also find uh, The Unsaved Christian, which, I mean, he writes lots of books, but this one happens to be my kind of all-time favorite. Uh, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We will be right back.
So um, earlier, our sweet producer, Paul Perot, um, was playing uh, Ukrainians singing in the subways um, where they are sheltering uh, in bomb, I mean, you know, functioning as bomb shelters against the Russian aerial attacks on civilians now in Ukrainian cities. Paul, I'm wondering what we're listening to now. This is uh, God the Great One. It's the prayer for Ukraine. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you are praying for and standing up with our Christian brothers and sisters um, around the world today. The situation in Ukraine makes us mindful of the challenges that people have faced in every generation because of war. We had a conversation on the way to church yesterday, um, you know, just about the complicated reality of war over generations. Um, the question was asked, like, you know, why, <laughs> why can't we just all live in peace? Which, you know, led to a conversation about the days in which there will be no more war and the reality um, of the kingdom of heaven and why we pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven and what that's going to look like. Like, I have to know what the kingdom of heaven is like if I am praying for its reality to be demonstrated in my own life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we are praying that war would be no more, as we are um, seeing images in cities that look an awful lot like the cities we live in, as we think about Russia's uh, assault on Kiev, I want you to think about, because it's easier to bring to mind, the city of Chicago. That's the scope and size and population density of Kiev. So when you're, when you're trying to bring to mind what's happening in Ukraine, maybe having the city of Chicago in your mind would be helpful. Imagine armored personnel carriers and tanks rolling down Chicago city streets. Think of the people that live in not only those high-rise apartments, but the people who live in those surrounding communities. Um, row houses and then um, houses with small yards and then suburban neighborhoods with larger yards and then outlying communities, some of them with regional airports. The regional airports uh, around Kiev have been attacked first um, as Russia seeks to find places and ways to bring more equipment and more troops um, into the battle. And I want you to think about, you know, where, <laughs> where would you go? Like, where would you go if your city was under aerial assault? These people, many of them, um, half a million at this point, have fled to the borders where every Ukrainian man between the ages of 18 and 60 has been turned back so that they can fight for their country. They have said goodbye to their wives and their mothers and their children and sent them um, into Poland or Romania or Moldova or other uh, surrounding countries. They have been, uh, those refugees have been received and then are being shuttled along in some places to, uh, to other allied nations. Um, but I want you to think about that family separation that's taking place at those borders. And I want you to think about the challenges of those who cannot leave, live too far from a border to, um, to make their way there or have decided and determined to stay and fight. 
And I want you to consider the families of the 14 children whose lives have um, been lost to these Russian war efforts already, the hundreds of Ukrainians who've died, and the thousands of Russians um, who will be received back um, in, in body bags to the surprise and dismay of their mothers and wives who have been led to believe um, lies by Vladimir Putin. So as we pray, I want us to hold all of this in our hearts and minds. As we pray the news, um, as we hear the stories, as we watch events unfold in real time, I want us to be praying um, ardently that God would protect the innocents and God would change the heart and mind of one man, Vladimir Putin, that indeed in this day and in this particular circumstance, war would be no more. That's my particular prayer for how I would like to see God demonstrate his power today on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to talk next with Daniel Bennett from John, John, John Brown University. He and I are going to talk about some of the U.S. responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're also going to talk about um, other major headline news here in the United States. President Biden has made a nomination for the Supreme Court, um, the, the vacancy that will be created when Justice Stephen Breyer retires. Uh, and President Biden has nominated uh, Katanji Brown Jackson to that seat. And we're going to talk about her in our conversation with Daniel Bennett up next. Talking with Dan Bennett, as we uh, do on a regular basis. You can find him at John Brown University. You can also find what he's thinking about reading and writing at his Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, welcome back. Thank you. Um, why don't you just uh, survey for us your sense of where we are in terms of the U.S. response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk through you know, the things that interest you in terms of the U.S. response. Yeah, just looking at the past few days, it really has been a a very baby step approach here. And uh, I think what you're seeing is a, a desire not to inflame the situation further than it is. That can be frustrating for people who are watching from a distance, uh, sometimes myself included, who would like to see maybe a more forceful response to the violence that we're seeing. Um, but the foreign policy... Uh, folks, you know, will say we want to take these measures gradually and ramp up as we need to rather than go full bore right away. Um, so that was my initial thought. Uh, and based on what we're seeing from from what I've seen from the Russian economy today, you know, certainly those sanctions seem to be doing something. It's just a matter of what the Russian response to those sanctions are going to be now. I think that the um, the president's uh referencing, hey, you know, we'll check in 30 days from now and see how these sanctions are working. I think that was the jaw-dropping, um, like, that That probably provoked more Americans to um, to wonder about this process 
and the, uh, you know, and the wisdom of the process, because we were watching things unfold in real time. And mm. we're thinking to ourselves, 30 days from now, like Ukraine, yeah. how can these how can these people, you know, they're going to run out of vodka to make Molotov cocktails to throw at armored personnel carriers like, so, you know, like, right. We're as I think that we see these pictures and we think about the reality of life where we live it and how we live mm. it. And it looks an awful lot like like home. And mm-hmm. I think that. Um, Daniel, that is one of the really significant differences. There are a lot of Americans with a lot of relationships uh, and not just uh, Americans. There are a lot of people around the globe um, with relationships with people in Ukraine. And um, that is different. There's somehow there's a there's a difference in the way we're experiencing this. This is certainly not the first nation even in the past several years to have suffered an invasion by a neighbor or, you know, or a or a horrific civil war. Um, but, but somehow this feels very different. It absolutely does. And this is the first time we've, uh, seen an invasion of a, for all intents and purposes, a European oriented country Mm -hmm. in the age of social media. Um, so the images that we're seeing and the things that we're seeing from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these things, you know, it's getting to us in a way that historically it's never been done before you know previously in world war ii obviously and other other conflicts around the world we had to rely on uh embedded media but now people just have phones everywhere and so that's Mm going to change i think people's perceptions and yeah i think the fact that it does look different than other countries and we can talk about our our biases and all that but you know when we see what was going on in syria several years ago and it was devastating and, you know, but, but it just looked different, right? I mean, it just it just had a different feel to it. The roads, the buildings. Ukraine looks like, you know, could could be a city here in the U.S. or could be, mm-hmm. you know, these cities could be here in the U.S. And so I think that's going to, I think, change people's perceptions. Um, what, if anything, do you know about SWIFT? I know that one of the things that has happened just in the last day is that um, – uh, the you know worldwide banking the financial this financial telecommunication uh, network has been Russia has been shut out so right. I I just confess to you um I had to look it up Swift the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication um, and it's a messaging system that was founded in 1973 that's about right. all I know about it. Yeah, it's basically a it's basically I heard it described as a WhatsApp for banking. And so there's no money that actually goes through this. It's all just confirmation between institutions to confirm that transactions are legitimate. Um, And so, you know, obviously, Russian banks are going to be able to distribute money. But what they're not going to be able to do with Swift is have or without Swift, rather, is have that quick access to credit card confirmations and international transactions that, again, in this globalized economy have just become kind of a day-to-day practice. And so it's going to slow down uh, the the financial systems in Russia to the point where it's just really inefficient. That's why, that's why I understand it. As talking as a non-economist, as a non-finance person, it's a big deal. And you could see in, in Biden's uh, press conference on, I think it was Thursday, he hesitated about kicking Russia out of SWIFT. He said, well, we're going to kind of just take that, you know, on a, we're going to see how that goes. Um, But things moved quickly on the global stage and uh, it's, it's in effect now. I'm reading here that um, after disconnecting some Russian banks from SWIFT, 
the White House, the European Commission, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom and Canada are all also, quote, imposing restrictive measures to prevent the Russian central bank from deploying its international reserves in ways that would undermine the impact of other Western sanctions. So there's a lot going on here. There are layers and layers and layers. And I think that's one of the things, Daniel, that I wanted people to um, to hear this morning, because sometimes we only hear a soundbite because the news media doesn't think we have the appetite nor capacity to understand the layers and layers and layers when it get into a conversation about sanctions. But it's a little bit like um, uh, the way in which you might discipline a child in your own home. Um, you're going to have layers and layers and layers of sanctions or restrictions that you're going to place on them to bring them back into uh, compliance with the family rule and the way that the household functions together. And you're not going to deploy, you're not going to unload your whole, uh, you know, uh, everything you've got um, in the first round. And so I think that I have thought about Putin a little bit like a child, and I know that that might be a terribly pejorative thing to say, but the the global community is actually seeking to bring him back into sort of behavioral compliance with the way we all function together as a world. Yeah, and I think that's the purpose of economic sanctions. You don't see the immediate effects like you would if you just dropped a bomb on a on a building or something, right? I mean, these are gradual things. Part of the hope, of course, is that the sanctions will make things so difficult in Russia. And, you know, it's unfortunate. It's a terrible side effect, but people will be just kind of miserable there economically. And there might be a push to, you know, finally say, you know, look, enough's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully that will change the calculus. It's a little too early to say whether that actually is going to happen. But that's the goal, right? It is this gradual process, like you said. Mm -hmm. I'm not normally thankful for hackers, but I'm really super duper thankful for whoever it is that's making it possible for the people of Russia to still have Internet access and um, and the people of Ukraine as well, um, because that's the way that real information is now getting through uh, to people. And it's just crazy. All right. So let's take a very brief um, pause. When we come back, um, love to talk with you about President Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. We're talking with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Next up, the information you need to know about Katanji Brown Jackson. You're listening to Mornings with So with guitar in hand and uh, huddled together in a subway, that is Ukrainians singing together in shelters amid the Russian raid. Um, the song that they are singing is Mighty to Save, which is a Hillsong uh, release from 2006, and it's wildly popular in Ukraine. And so um, maybe maybe tee up Mighty to Save uh, somewhere in your playlist today, and as you sing it at the top of your lungs, sing it in the joyful unison of spirit with our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. We're continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, um, what do we know at this point about the president's nominee to the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson? Well, first, and for obvious reasons, this is probably the least covered Supreme Court nomination <laughs> in recent American history. Uh, and, and it's not just because of what we're seeing internationally. Um, I think, obviously, if the news was slower, 
and, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of other things going on. We would, you know, we would be focused on it more. But this this nomination won't tilt the balance ideologically of the Supreme mm. Court uh, in the way that uh, Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. Uh, so in that sense, you know, we're, we're essentially just maintaining the status quo, which is why I think we're going to see, you know, resistance and probably a lot of votes against Judge Jackson from Republicans. But at the end of the day, they're not going to want to you know, use all their ammo on this particular nomination. Um, but about the about the judge herself, uh, relatively young. I think she's 49 or 51. I need to actually double check on that. Um, former public defender, elite law school training. So that's very consistent with the current Supreme Court. Harvard, uh, uh, Harvard Law um, was nominated uh, to the district court uh, in Washington, D.C. by President Obama and then just recently nominated to the probably the second most important court in the country, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals by President Biden uh, last year. She was confirmed with a handful of Republican votes. Um, and just wanted to comment really quickly on a phenomenon that we're seeing now where Democratic senators are saying, well, she was confirmed by, you know, with, a, with several Republican votes. So why wouldn't they vote for her now? Um, I, so our judicial system relies on. Uh, precedent set by the Supreme Court. And there is an argument to be made that someone could be very well qualified and very has sterling credentials and reputations to serve on the lower courts uh, and would garner bipartisan support. But there might be a different calculation when you want to put that person on the nation's highest court, which is going to now be in charge of essentially arbiting uh, arbitrating rather those constitutional decisions. So I think there is a difference between putting someone on a lower court and the Supreme Court. Now, based on the previous nominees that we've seen in history, recent history, she is absolutely qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. And if you take the position like I do that presidential elections have consequences and we should largely defer to the president's choices in these matters, she should be confirmed, even if it's on a razor thin margin. She's a fascinating person. Um, and, um, and I think that one of the, one of the things people are going to like about her is how many layers there are to her story. Like she's a, she's not a flat character. Um, and even, uh, even the story of, uh, I mean, the different, um, histories of her husband's family in America and her family in America in terms of, of their experience. Um, I think that. She's a she's just a fascinating character. She's actually through marriage related to yeah. Paul Ryan. Like I'm just right. saying, like so, it's crazy the stuff. Uh, I just think she's I think she's a far more interesting person than sometimes we have um, known about Supreme Court justices in the past. Yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, we tend to think of Supreme Court justices as almost, uh, you know, otherworldly. Well, we couldn't really relate to them. There was some talk about Brett Kavanaugh coaching his daughter's basketball games, and that was kind of a big deal. Like, wow, he's just like us. And with Judge Jackson, I think we're seeing a similar thing where that she has a story that if we, you know, we all can at least appreciate and say, oh, you know, there's a person underneath those legal credentials and underneath the robe mm -hmm. and all these uh, jargony uh, writing. Um, and so that's the kind of thing, by the way, that uh, the Biden administration and Democratic senators are going to want to play up, certainly her qualifications, but also to show the American people like, no, this is actually a real person. And it's not it's not the ideologue that you're being told she is by certain senators. Uh, not a rubber stamp for policy. She's a thoughtful, like I think you said it very well, layered person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, 
I think there's a lot to learn. Um, and certainly her judicial philosophy is not one that I share. Um, but as you have pointed out, she is um, she's going to be confirmed. The the Democrats have the vote, you know, have the votes to do it without any Republican support, um, should they desire to do that. Uh, and um, I don't think that, you know, again, as you have pointed out, it's not as if she changes the balance on the Supreme right. Court. She is replacing right. ideologically a person, um, uh, I mean, literally cut from the same cloth. I mean, she clerked for him. So, um, right. so yeah, I, th- I think she's going to be confirmed, and I think that getting to know her as best we can— um, certainly praying for her um, as she rises into this position of incredible influence. And she is young. Um, I looked it up while we were talking. Um, she was born September 14, 1970. So I think she's... Yeah. She'll turn 52. Yeah, she'll be 52 this year. So there you go. She's 51. All right. Um, Daniel, as always, thank you so much. I'm not good at math. Thank you so much <laughs> for <laughs> joining us today. You guys can find Daniel Bennett at John Brown University. You can also... Um, he, he will aggregate for you things that you should be reading if you check out the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We will wrap up this hour in just a moment. All right. Um, check out the Set Apart Conference if you haven't done so already. It's at the end of this week. I will be headed up your way to participate in it so you can check it out at myfaithradio.com the set apart conference 2022 and yes for those of you asking it's a women's thing thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio if you haven't you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through itunes or the google play music app that way you never miss an episode it's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com